0: I mean, I probably, like you, began in a traditional understanding of my denominational religion. That's the best way to start. It really is. To have the frame and to fall in love with God inside of that frame and then recognize that the language that the frame absolutizes is utterly inadequate. It's just a finger pointing to the moon. It is not the moon. It's never the moon.
1: I miss you, listeners. I miss you been a minute. It's been a little while. Oh boy. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast, everybody. It's been like what, three, three weeks? Three weeks, yeah. And we have what could be our best episode ever. Yeah. I mean, it's up there. Yeah, yeah. We, John and I started this whole dilly <laughs> around reading some books that were a little off the beaten path for us, and one of those fantastic, wonderful, saintly people Happens to be our guest today, who's a returning guest.
2: I would say clearly one of our mentors.
1: Clearly one of our mentors, if you're into the Joseph Campbell <laughs> hero's journey kind of deal. He's he's a Gandalf.
2: Yeah. Yes, he what is. What a sweet, sweet Gandalf he is. Oh, my gosh. He even kind of resembles Gandalf a little bit. <laughs> he's better than Gandalf. I would put him in some white robes. If
1: know. he wasn't so nonviolent, I bet he could like beat Gandalf in an arm wrestling contest. <laughs> so... We bring you the the absolutely delightful and wise Father Richard Rohr. And this episode, we have the audacity to title this episode because this is how we designed it. <laughs> Richard Rohr 101. Yeah. Because there's so many great conversations with Richard Rohr out there, but this guy has got such an unbelievable breadth of things that he covers throughout his work that I'm constantly running into people like, give me a quick intro on Richard Rohr. And it's like, I can't do that. Like, yeah, you need to read like chunks of this book, chunks of this book, chunks of this book. So in, with that in mind, we tried to design this episode for all of you out there that love Richard Rohr and just want to just kind of take a tour, like a little journey through his work with him. And for those of you that like to have something to pass off to a friend to say like, hey, I, I keep telling you about Richard Rohr. Here's like a Richard Rohr 101 interview, like where they go over like tons of stuff.
2: Yeah, and and I love this is this was all your idea, and uh, I think it's brilliant because yeah, like you said, I don't have, have
1: ideas without you, John. <laughs> whatever,
2: <laughs> it's not happened. You're funny, <laughs> <laughs> but no, you, you brought this. You brought this uh, this idea, and I was like, oh, that's brilliant because um, there are a lot of words that are associated with Richard Rohr, like mysticism and um, I don't non-dual, know. yeah, and, contemplative, yes, Cosmic Christ. Yeah. A lot of these, um, you know, Francis, you know, the Franciscan traditions and, oh, yeah. and we throw, we throw those words around a lot, but like, honestly, when, when we break it down, like a lot of people are like, what are you talking what about? What the heck are you talking about? And even sometimes like, because I think father Rohr
1: does so many of these talks and he's so prolific and he speaks so many places and writes so much stuff that even when he starts to like say things, I think sometimes it's good for somebody to come in and say, hang on, you say that a lot. Explain that as if, people listening to this don't know who you are and where you're coming from. Yeah. And it's good to just stop people sometimes and say like, before I start assuming things, what are you talking about? Yeah. It's just fun to do that.
2: Yeah. So I don't think we need to explain who he is too much. Um, if you're not familiar with father, Richard Rohr uh, go back. He, we had him on once um, at the end of our very, very first year, our very first season uh, in, in December around the holidays and, uh, it was a, a tremendous episode, but we, as you said, really this time get into, you know, kind of the, the very fundamental, fundamental, sorry, fundamental. Yeah. yeah. Not
1: fundamentalist.
2: No <laughs> fundamental, <laughs> uh, like building blocks of, you know, Richard Rohr's work. So, yeah. or at least we try to, we, mm-hmm. we dip into it a little. So,
1: and the thing I love about Rohr, um, if I could just say one more thing before we roll tape and the reason that, you know, we'd want to have somebody like this on again and again and again and again and forever is because with with deconstruction, often often there comes in my opinion, um, whether you want to or not, uh it happened to me, probably happened to you to a degree, all of us differently, it can get kind of dark and cynical. Like it can just get kind of negative and like uh you find yourself grabbing more cans of gasoline and fists full of matches, you know, than you do um plaster and paint and you know two by fours and a hammer and nails. And you know, Roar is somebody that, uh, is not somebody that you'd find in what you would call the traditional sense of like the Christian, um, American Christian experience, but you find a deep orthodoxy, a perennial orthodoxy that can be very uplifting and centering and put your feet back down on the ground and almost hug you and just make you feel like everything's going to be all right. And you don't have to throw it all away. And, I think we need that. We need more positive voices, people that aren't wasting their time burning down the other side on social media or acting like they're the next greatest thing because of the way they say it or or, or whatever. We need guys that are anchored um, in historic tradition, but have the the kind of magic that only Roar and some others tend to have. So he's a real gift, man. And uh, I am personally
2: extremely thankful for him. Yeah. I think, I think before you and I had even met, uh, that was the book that I was reading falling upwards specifically, which, uh, for those of you listening, if you, if you really want just this beautifully written guide, it's this really like just a lovely book in and of itself. Um, and it's, and it's not long, but it will take you a minute to get through it. It is so dense content wise. Um, you, you find yourself highlighting every other, you know, sentence, but um, if you want to really put language and words to what it is that maybe you're going through and, and maybe what you're feeling and, and a challenge, even there's a, I think there's a, a an inherent challenge in that book um, to really push yourself to evolve spiritually. What book is that? Falling Upward. Yes. Yeah. Um, that, I mean, that's just a really great place to start, I think.
1: So good. So we'll let this speak for itself. Um, the Deconstructionist podcast is proud <laughs> to bring you once again Richard freaking Freakin Roar. All right. Well, uh, it is with great excitement and uh, deep honor. That We welcome back to the Deconstructionist Podcast um, our sage, our teacher, and uh, hopefully our friend. Thank you for being here, Father, Father Richard.
0: You're welcome. I'm glad to be with you again.
1: Thank you. It's such a thrill to have you here. So, you um, recently just had a birthday. While we're recording this episode, you had a birthday. You had sent out a wonderful little meditation, and it talked a little bit about your life. I was wondering, for those of you that out there that maybe don't, aren't acquainted with uh, Father Rohr's work... Um, Father Roy, would you just give us a, a little spiritual autobiography synopsis?
0: Oh, okay. Well, I turned 75 yesterday. Uh, I'm a Franciscan priest. I uh, live in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I've been here 31 years. Work around the corner with a wonderful place called the Center for Action and Contemplation. We have almost 40 people on staff, mostly millennials like you look like you might be, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> just, so,
2: a, just a little bit out of the range. Just, but yeah. just, just a <laughs>
1: shade, just a shade shy of that. But, yeah. but thank you. We must look younger than <laughs> uh, on, on.
3: Yeah. They're
0: so creative and they're so intelligent that it's really wonderful.
3: Yeah.
0: So, um, what else could I say? I, I, I'm just finishing a book on the cosmic Christ. I guess you're going to ask me a little about that. Oh yes. Uh so uh, I always say, and I mean this every time sincerely, and I mean it again this time, this is my last book. I don't <laughs> <laughs> when I say that the staff just laughs I don't know like you just did <laughs> yeah
1: we're not gonna we're not gonna let this
0: my true. last planned book
1: That's okay. just... We're not gonna let that be true <laughs> hopefully Uh-oh. Well, we wanted to have you back on the show and um give people an overview because so many have gravitated towards your teachings for so many reasons. We, John and I really feel like, you know, there's no really great way to say this. So we use clumsy language, but that there's really just something going on in the world, something shifting in the universe in terms of spirituality and especially Western Christianity. And you, father Richard have become one of those gathering, unifying sage voices that so many we know and ourselves included have really come to trust and and come to and listen to. And we'd like to touch on some of these reasons. So um, to begin with, even though you are a Christian, you identify as Christian Catholic Franciscan um, you base those particularities within a larger, deeper, older stream, something that you call the perennial tradition. Could you talk to us a little bit about what you mean by the perennial tradition?
0: Okay. Let me try quickly. Uh, You know, uh, Thomas Aquinas, one of our great Catholic heavyweights, he said, the question isn't who said it. The only question is, is it true? And if it's true, he said, it is always from the Holy Spirit. Mm. Uh, And so, uh, you know, if the spirit that hovered over chaos in the first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1-1, Uh, It has been hovering ever since. Then we have to believe that God's truth will bubble up out of the unconscious. Uh, How could it not? Uh, God didn't just start talking maybe 2,500 years ago when we began to write the Bible. (laughs) We now know that the the geological age of the universe is something like 13.6 billion years. So, I can't believe God had nothing to say for 13.6 billion years. Waited for the last, the last nanosecond. And I'm not trying to be irreverent, but the Bible was just written in the last nanosecond of time. The Catholic Church just emerged, uh, you know, in a shorter period than that. The Protestant churches in the last nano, nano, nano (laughs) nanosecond, and then we all come along thinking we're reading all of history with this perfection. So forgive that long answer, but we've got to recognize that God has always been speaking. And once you learn to connect the dots of divine wisdom, themes like faithfulness, love, grace, humility, uh, they keep emerging in all great spiritual teachers. They're, for us to say these are unique to the Christian revelation is just not true. Mm. <laughs> yeah. mm. You'd think we'd be happy to know that our our truth that we've discovered, and I do identify as a Christian, very much so, uh, we, you'd think we'd be happy that Others have discovered this truth, too, you know, instead of being upset about it. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I can't for the life of me get that. So that's the perennial tradition. The the truth that has been emerging since uh, the spirit first hovered over chaos Mm. has been discovered by native religions, uh, all the historic world religions. And I believe has been verbalized beautifully by Jesus, maybe profoundly by Jesus. And all the rest of them should be seen as friends of ours, not enemies. So that's the perennial tradition. Yeah. But uh, believe me, that's a quick oversimplification. But I was educated in it. Uh, I, I think you read some of my birthday meditation yesterday that That I was educated by these Franciscans who had studied with the best and the brightest in Europe in the 50s and 60s. And they came back and gave us the Christian, the history of Christian ideas, Mm. not just the conclusions. Mm. Most seminaries give you their denominational conclusions. Mm. I understand that. But then you feel you have to spend the rest of your life proving those denominational conclusions instead of recognizing almost all of them were a dot on a much longer trajectory. Uh, And if you can honor the longer trajectory, that includes the Old Testament, which isn't really old. We shouldn't call it that. (laughs) Uh, uh, But, you know, let me end with one fact. The very fact that we Christians incorporate the Hebrew Scriptures. Here's the one I've been studying from since 1966. Look at that, and look at that. Much of it is the Hebrew Scripture, the larger part. Yeah, <laughs> and we incorporate that into the Christian Bible. You realize this is already an inclusive statement. Uh, wow. About it is. This is an, We're an inclusive religion, <laughs> and we include Judaism in our religion. That that most Christians didn't understand that, and that something as absurd as anti-Semitism could emerge among Christians is laughable. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) And it shows how little they know their own Bible. (laughs) Yeah. And, of course, Jesus was a Jew, lived a Jew, died a Jew. You'd think we'd kiss the feet of every Jew we meet. Mm. Yeah. But because we didn't understand our own tradition, we, or the perennial tradition,
3: mm.
0: got into foolishness like anti-Semitism or anti-anything for that matter.
1: It makes you really grumpy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: It does. It does. Yeah. So go ahead. Take me beyond that or I'll start preaching. <laughs>
1: oh, we love it.
2: Hey. Feel, feel free. Yeah, Carte Blanche here. Carte <laughs> Blanche. So, so... One one of the other terms that we'd love to hear you uh, speak on is this term that's, that's gained a lot of traction in in recent years, uh, and that is the term mystic or mysticism. Mm. And oh, yeah. for the layman out there listening, they may have recognized this term um, as, as being uniquely a Christian one, but but it's not. Oh, this is, oh. this exists within uh, a lot of major religions, including uh, some indigenous and folk religions. But what is a mystic exactly? What what does that term mean? Mm.
0: Okay, let's go back to the etymology in the uh, Indo-European language. The root M-U means a mute, unspeakable. Mm. What you do when you cross your lips and say, quiet, be quiet. Um, and that created the word mystery, the word mystic, the word mute, many other words. So mystical religion and a mystic, is the one who's moved beyond that which is fully explainable, knowable, controllable, predictable, (laughs) in other words, has entered into the mystery of God. But it's usually a step not outside of organized religion, but beyond what religion can organize. I never said it that way before. Hmm. But I think, yeah, it's unorganizable because it's, unspeakable. So it's the unspeakability of God. Now again, let's go back to our Hebrew Scriptures. You know, you're familiar with Exodus 3 where Moses says, give me your name, what is your name? And in effect, I know it's translated many different ways, but in effect, I am who am is, I'm not going to tell you my name. (laughs) 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 Because once you have it, You think you can control me. Mm. You think you understand me. Or you think you know what you're talking about. You know, Karl Rahner, the great German Jesuit who was such a force at our Second Vatican Council. He said, uh, by a hundred years from now, I don't know when he said that, sometime in the early part of the last century, our middle part, uh, either Christianity is going to discover that it's a mystical religion. Yeah, or might as well close shop. That that we're talking about the unspeakable, and when we try to make the unspeakable glib speakability, mm. we prostitute the whole process. So mystic is one who's who's had experiential knowledge of the absolute, experiential knowledge of mystery that they know they might as well stop talking, because no matter what they say, it will not be adequate. Now, uh, as you said, this is found in all of the world religions, and the amazing thing is, people who move to this level of mystical religion have a very easy time understanding other mystics who are Jewish, or Sufi, uh, or, or Buddhist, or native. Native religions. At that level, language seems to congeal.
3: <laughs> uh,
0: we tend to know what the other is talking about, and what the other is talking about is unspeakability. Now, I, I don't think, in all fairness, most of us can start there. We, I mean, I probably, like you, began in a traditional understanding of my denominational religion. Mm. Catholic, in my case, I guess evangelical. Yes. In your, so yeah, that's the best way to start. It really is to have the frame and to fall in love with God inside of that frame, and then recognize that the language that the frame absolutizes is utterly inadequate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just a finger pointing to the moon. It is not the moon. It's never the moon. When I talked to you last time, did I use my uh, metaphor of the three boxes?
1: Yes, yes. But please. Uh, yeah, that I
0: don't need to repeat that. <laughs> but it, for my students in the Living School, they find it so helpful. I think a lot of us are visual learners. Yes. And uh, most of us, like my conservative Catholic beginnings, told me that the end-all and the be-all was to stay in the first box of order.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: And you didn't realize that the way you understood it was, frankly, infantile. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's the only way you can, that's the way infants understand things, you know? And you have to grow up. So that traditional order box is a good place to start. Forgive me if I'm repeating. Not at all. It's, it's not a good place to continue and no one ends up there, uh, you, because uh, once you go to the mystical level, you realize, my gosh, those early formulations were wonderful, but they were also prisons. Mm. If, if you take them too literally, and I probably said, forgive me, literalism is the lowest level of meaning, the least helpful level of meaning the least transformative level of meaning, Mm. just to prove that it literally happened. I mean, what a thinking person can rightly say is, well, so what? (laughs) 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 Well, so what literally happened? How does that change my life? The meaning of the happening is where the transformative power is at. And that's the second box of disorder. When you first recognize that just repeating the formula... Is never to understand the formula. It, it can't be. <laughs> mm. It's what uh, one philosopher called first naïveté. You've heard that language, have you? Yeah. yeah. Re- is that record? Paul Ricœur. That's exactly right. And the goal reorder is second naïveté, where you, I can I can read the account of the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem and weep before its beauty, uh, and surrender to the, the symbolic, in-depth meaning of every line. But I don't need to prove Jesus was born in a, a stable in Bethlehem. Although, for all practical purposes, I believe it. But defending that is, is not my goal, because mm-hmm. that is the message. It really isn't.
3: Mm-hmm. If
0: he was born in Nazareth, it'd be fine with me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm just using that as a silly example. Sure. Yeah. But those are the things. Those are the things
1: we fight about. You know. Sure seems to be. We fight about a lot of things. Uh, a lot of this can be found for those of you that are listening. If you want uh, more on mysticism, um, the book "The Naked Now: Learning to See as the Mystics See." Uh, Father Roar, that book really transformed me in a lot of ways. Um, I'm one of who you spoke of that was raised in the first box and all of a sudden by no um, intentionality or design of my own, found myself in the second box and yeah. went and, and said, and, and start, yeah, started, yep. started saying, oh my goodness and hallelujah <laughs> at, at the same time. And uh, the naked now has been wonderful. Uh, one of my favorite quotes, you say, um, once you have known grace and, and the key word for me, there is known, you know, that experience, yes. your, your yeah. tit for tat universe is forever undone. God is everywhere and always and scandalously found even in the failure of sin. Now, some people might start to say, like when I'm telling people, I read this book, this Richard Roy book is blowing my mind. They're like, oh, that experience stuff is all just relativism, Adam. It's You're just subjective, you know, subjective truth and blah, blah. And I'm like, no, you don't get it. It's more <laughs> real than ever. <laughs> <laughs> what, what would you have, have to say about, about that experience and uh, relativizing the truth, as some would like to say?
0: Well, I can understand why they say it. Yeah. Because we both came from traditions that told us not to trust our experience, right? And in some reasons for some reasons, I can understand that we Catholics were told to trust authority mm. Popes and priests and documents and fathers of the church. you were told to trust bible quotes neither of us neither of us were honest yeah because you know what what won out anyway was your experience you interpreted the Bible through your I'll just use a A silly example, through your Alabama culture, all right, Mm -hmm. through Texas culture. Uh, I've taught all over the world, and your Swiss culture, your Czech culture. Your own experience, it cannot not dominate the field. So true. It is the filter and the lens through which you read the Bible and through which we interpreted the Pope or the priests or the bishops. So we've just got to start being honest about that. Mm. That experience led the way anyway, but it was, because we didn't admit it, (laughs) what what was allowed to happen is our experience was uncritiqued. Mm. Now, here's why we can talk this way today, is frankly, in the last 100 and 150 years, things have emerged that we call psychology, that we call spiritual direction that we call the Enneagram, that we call the Myers-Briggs, that we call Spiral Dynamics. You don't need to know any of those. But just, you've been given 10 tools Mm. by which you can critique your own experience, Mm. you know, to recognize the shadow side of your own experience. The the 12-step program has helped us see how people who are addicts, and we almost all are in different ways, uh, have a, a highly blurred experience. Those that I've mentioned in the last minute have largely emerged in the last hundred years. So like never before, we have the ability to listen to our experience precisely because we can also, for the first time, critique it you know in the 16th century they didn't have psychology it was just it was sort of an over-objectivized reading of every text mm. as if the bible or a papal quote fell from heaven in a glad bag <laughs> uh, text outside of context <laughs> and it just it wasn't true it just I mean, we saw so many people abuse scripture quotes. You know, I just got a book, uh, uh, basically calling American Christianity, and I hope this isn't too shocking, but slaveholder religion.
1: Oh, yeah, we just got the same book.
0: Yep. And you know what I'm talking about? It's it's he's brilliant. Yes. A religion that could justify the total total oppression of a race of people, in the name of its Bible, has so compromised the Bible that uh, that we have no basis for taking them seriously anymore. But we fit a whole understanding of Christianity, and and ironically, it was the southern states of the United States that interpreted the American version of the Bible. Mm -hmm. So this is what's just being roundly laughed at by much of the world. Any religion that can use the Bible to justify apartheid, slavery, whatever else in that direction, does not deserve our respect. Yeah. And it, it cannot be taken seriously as a spiritual interpretation. Mm. It's used by culture, by patriarchy, by imperial thinking, and totally distorted Jesus for its own purposes. And I'm not using the word totally lightly. Mm. <laughs> this has nothing to do with the folly of the cross anymore. This has nothing to do uh, when the very symbol of lynching is almost exactly the cross. Yeah. <laughs> and we continued the same thing, but now thinking we could use the word Jesus without blushing
3: mm.
0: on on Sunday morning it, the world no longer believes it forgive me for jumping to such an extreme example but I think at this point when we see the resurgence of white privilege uh, in our country we've got to name it for what it is mm. that yeah. this this is not the Jesus religion or even close to it mm.
2: want I want to ask a question that kind of I think keeps with this theme. And, and so you have this you have this section in the in the back of, uh, of your latest book, The Divine Dance: uh, The Trinity and Your Transformation, where you say uh, Trinitarian theology is going to offer us perhaps the best foundation for interfaith dialogue and friendship we've ever had. And yes, I would love because one of the big questions that always comes up on our show, um, and, and we have listeners who, who span beyond you know Christianity, um, as well, we're fortunate enough to have a pretty eclectic audience. Uh, but one of the big questions that also that always comes up is is can grace be found in other religions, and and how do we how do we find um, I guess um, how do we how do we find a way to engage in dialogue with other other religions?
0: Wow, where do I start? Hmm. Well, you know, since you brought up the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, see, I, I think for the reform of Christianity, and maybe I say that in that book, I don't remember. Uh, (laughs) We have have to rebuild it from the bottom up. And the shape of God is the foundation. Until you get the shape of God correct, then those of us created in the image and likeness of this God, Genesis 1, 26, 27, we're ill-defined too. (laughs) Um, So if God is, you know, well, God is a relationship, what Mm. Trinity is saying. God is a flow of infinite love between three. God is a communion. Then any notion of God as a monarch, a male monarch at that, Mm. sitting on a throne, just validates an entire religion that is top-down, monarchical. Hierarchical, imperial, use whatever word you want. Now that made sense till the last couple hundred years because most people grew up with kings and queens and princes, and so we just projected that all onto God. Now you and I know that the shape of the universe is is in fact very different. It's <laughs> not it's not top-down, but everything is is flow, is Circulatory systems, as ecosystems, is is orbits and cycles, and it's. uh, I just had a heart attack a few months ago, so they showed me pictures of my whole heart uh, system, you know, and and it's just oh my god, that's been operating in here ever since I was born, seventy five years ago, and I've just taken it for granted. Mm. I never saw it once, you know, and it's allowing me to live every minute right now, like it is you, the, the notion of God as flow, as communion, as infinite love that never stops giving and receiving. Mm. That's the shape of God. This is going to be, as I say at the beginning of that book, a a, a gigantic paradigm shift. Yeah. Because for all practical purposes, 98% of Christians in all of our denominations, are not trinitarian. Mm. They are not Catholics or Protestants or Orthodox. None of us would think of denying the doctrine of the Blessed Trinity, but we've shelved it for all practical purposes and went ahead. We pulled Jesus out of the Trinity, made him sit on a throne because we like thrones, right? We like, <laughs> we like top-down religion, and yeah, we
1: Zeused him. We Zeusified him.
0: Yeah, that's right. Our Latin word Deus is the same as the Greek word Zeus. That's you got it. So the reason I'm saying all this is we overplayed the Jesus card. Now, my next book is entirely on Jesus and Christ. I just sent in the final draft of it yesterday. So don't think I don't love Jesus. Don't think. <laughs> in fact, uh, I hope Jesus the Christ will take on ten times more meaning. But we got to rebuild from the bottom up. Now, once we recognize that God is equally the one we call Father, we'll recognize that some spiritual traditions seem to point to that. I would pick out Buddhism especially, where the unspeakable one, the one that we don't even try to talk about uh, because it's beyond language, is the one we call Father. Hmm. Many of the world religions uh, would be much more representative of the one we called Holy Spirit.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: I'd speak especially of the native religions of all the world that saw the Great Spirit in all things. So we overplayed the Jesus card without Father and Spirit. Right? A lot of other religions might have overplayed the Father card, the Spirit card. Once we can get back into the Trinitarian flow of God being diversity and unity mm. at the same time, but try to think of it that way. Mm. Instead of simply one, three, which sounds like a, a mathematical problem, <laughs> <that's God laughs> diversity and unity, in fact, the divine unity is the infinite acceptance of. Of the diversity between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's important that we have three different words. You see, that honors diversity at the core of the universe. And, and you, it's pretty obvious. Most Christians are still not comfortable with diversity at all. <laughs> yeah. at, at all. All they want is sameness, sameness, same, and call that Christianity. They don't understand the nature of God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father, and yet they are. (laughs) They are by reason of infinite infinite love one for the other. Mm. So we've got a marvelous, marvelous understanding of divinity that is infinitely expandable. Once we become Trinitarian again, and we put Jesus as the incarnation of the eternal Christ that existed from all eternity, which is the thrust of my new book, uh, we're going to find ourselves finally humble and able to honor native religions, Hindu religion, Buddhist religion, while being happily a Christian and recognizing it was the great Trinitarian mystery that gave us the humility and the breadth to honor god in all of god's manifestations. We don't need to overplay the Jesus card and make us make ourselves into a tribal religion, which is what we've been for the first 2000 years. Yeah. There's there's little doubt about that. We we couldn't get beyond being Italian or Spanish if you were Catholic or German or Dutch if you were Protestant And we don't realize the little camps Mm. we were pulled into.
3: Mm. Uh,
0: It it was ethnicity. It was not Catholicity. Of course, you know what I mean by the word Catholic. Universal. I I don't mean Roman Catholic. I mean, (laughs) right. All right. And that word was coined as early as 108 by Ignatius of Antioch, who is traveling across Asia Minor and they're going to kill him in Rome. He was the bishop of Antioch. And uh, in village after village, he finds the. In, this is 108. Jesus has only been dead 78 years. Hmm. and And already he's meeting Christians, 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 Christians in every tribe. And he says, this is going to be a Catholic religion, a universal religion. It hadn't become Roman yet. But they still had knowledge of Colossians, Ephesians, the prologue to John's gospel, Paul's letters where he's talking about the cosmic Christ. Mm. Uh, But you and I weren't educated in that. All we had was Jesus of Nazareth. Most of us knew nothing about the cosmic Christ. And yet we both made a double affirmation of faith. You and I believe in Jesus christ but if most christians were honest they believe in jesus they don't believe in christ it's not their fault they've never been told about it despite colossians and ephesians and the first chapter of john's gospel Mm. so that's what i'm trying to talk about these days
3: Mm.
2: well but that was part of my follow-up question actually maybe we can just lead into that but i I think that's a lot of Christians, specifically within Western Christianity, that's the biggest stumbling block, mm. is the the human uh, incarnation, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, and so we've had uh, theologians, a lot of my heroes, long you know, long before any of us, who have who have struggled with um, grace and other religions, you know, your your Knitters and runners and Panikar and Hick, and um, so so why don't like let's talk about this idea of the cosmic Christ? What do we mean when we? when we say christ but uh is not the last name of jesus
0: <laughs> <laughs> they're thinking of that as the subtitle of of my book but they keep fighting over the subtitle <laughs> i don't know what i don't know what it's going to end up the first ti- the title is another name for everything ooh i like it that's going to be the title but then we got to get the right subtitle oh. cuz christ be ready to be shocked, but it's as orthodox as it gets. Christ is another name for everything, right? Let me, let me, I've got Ephesians open in front of me to show I'm a good Protestant. You really do. I know do. <laughs> I to read the Bible. We might have to
1: screenshot
0: that and put it on our website. <laughs> blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all the spiritual blessings of heaven in Christ. Before the world was made, he chose us, he chose us in Christ. It, you, do you know that phrase, en Christo, in Christ? Mm-hmm. It's used by Paul 164 times. Mm-hmm. It's his code word for this corporate understanding of salvation, this historic communal understanding of God saving civilization, God saving reality. Uh, but, Few of us were told about that. Huh? We, he determined from the beginning that we would be his adopted sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. Huh? The problem is solved at the beginning. Now, we in the Catholic world call that creation spirituality. That's what my own tradition, Franciscanism, emphasize, I'm sure you've heard me talk about this, uh, Mm -hmm. that we didn't need to wait for the cross for God to decide to love humanity, our creation. God loved, as Ephesians said, from the beginning we were chosen corporately and crystal. Do you know, I only discovered in writing this book, Jesus, I mean, Paul, Paul only uses the separate word Jesus Five times in all of his letters. Two of those are in the hymn from Philippians, which he didn't write himself, but he uses whoever wrote it. We don't know. And even if he did write it, it's okay. Yeah. Uh, just compare five to 164. Oh. <laughs> Paul never knew Jesus in the flesh. And that's that didn't happen by accident, in my opinion. Uh, I was just thinking that. <laughs> Yeah, why didn't our seminary professors tell us that? He, he, in some ways, and this is going to sound shocking, he's not interested in Jesus. He hardly, <laughs> quotes, he hardly quotes him, and the few times he does, that's shocking in itself, how little Paul directly quotes Jesus. And the few times he purports to do it, it's incorrect if we go by the four Gospels. Translation. You understand? It's not a word for word translation of Jesus ever. Ever.
1: (laughs) That is amazing.
0: So, how we came up with this, you know, every word in the Bible is literally true. When Matthew says it one way, Mark says it another way, Luke says it another way, the same healing story of the same leper has four different interpretations. Now, which is the inerrant? interpretation. Right. <laughs> it's, it's clear in the Bible they never intended that. Nor did Paul ever intend that. The reason I believe Paul became our great teacher is because the experience of Paul is is of the eternal Christ, not mm. Jesus. And you know what? That's your and my experience. You and I don't know Jesus in the flesh. We know the eternally risen Christ who is available in beyond space and time ever since the beginning, Yeah, you know? So uh, that phrase, en Christo, you just go through Paul's letters. And every time you read it, that's his little code word. We're now talking corporately, mm. historically, collectively. I don't know which word is most pleasing to you, but you see, now I'm going to give you a whole theology lesson, but... That was much more understood in the Eastern Church. And when, when the Western Church and the Eastern Church separated in 1054, mm. all the collective understanding of salvation was by the Eastern Fathers. Uh, and we stopped reading them. We stopped taking them seriously. So when you good Protestants, God bless you, you came along and tried to reform us terrible Catholics. <laughs> God bless you. I mean <laughs> since, we already had only half of it, but I hate to say it. I'm not trying to put you down. You had a fourth of it. Yeah, yeah. You, had, you <laughs> <laughs> When you reform one half or try to reform one half, well, the big half you were missing was the collective understanding. This is going to be exploding in the next 10, 20 years because theologians all over the world are recognizing that. I mean, even look at Eastern icons of the resurrection. Mm. Yes, uh, you've heard me talk about this, perhaps. Western church, Western art is always a lone Jesus coming out of the tomb with his white flag, and there's no message on the white flag because we don't know what the message is. Yeah, I don't. Think. And the only other people in the picture are the the soldiers who appear to be stunned, of course, and that's okay. But you go to now Eastern icons. The, the picture is filled with other human beings, and Christ has his legs spread over the darkness of Gehenna, or Hades, or Sheol, whatever, and he's standing on the gates of hell, and he's pulling people out of hell. You hmm. understand? Yep. It's uh, and all those pictures are called Anastasis. Anastasis. Literally means the uplifting. Now we translated it as resurrection, but they were called the uplifting of humanity, the the conquering of hell. The Anglican Church called it the harrowing of hell. It really was a victory. You understand? Amazing. God was victorious over death, and now all of our Easter songs say that. But in fact, none in the Western Church believe that. Mm. If you look at art, even in our Sistine Chapel, where our Pope is elected, you know, it's totally dualistic. It's one side accepting into heaven and the other side damning into hell, you know? Yeah, yep. Almost all of our art is dualistic. And, uh, you know, once we separated the two hemispheres of the Western Church from the Eastern Church, the two hemispheres of the lungs, even, you could... We stopped breathing the whole Christ. Uh, we really did. And, and our Western version is highly, almost exclusively individualistic. Individual salvation, individual notion of damnation. It's just not a, a big enough paradigm to hold creation or what, the greatness of what God is doing what C.S. Lewis called the weight of glory. Mm. But the individual cannot carry the weight of glory. Um, when when this explodes, and it's coming, it's coming very quickly. John Dominic Crossan has a new book, just came out a few weeks ago.
1: We just interviewed oh. him.
0: Yeah. Oh, no kidding. It, it came was, out just, wonderful just, book.
1: just before we're going to air this. It's like perfect. Everybody go back and listen to that one.
0: <laughs> well, then he talks about it. His research on the Eastern icons. Yes. Or did into that. You no. basically
1: just summarized the whole episode for us.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's isn't that amazing. That's wonderful. This, it's a gorgeous book. That's happening. And see what what the mouth couldn't say, theology couldn't say because it was too daring. Artists said.
1: Yes. Uh. Now,
0: now there were Eastern fathers who said it too, but the Eastern icons have, in my opinion. The true theology of resurrection. Mm. The West never got the resurrection.
1: maybe because they didn't lose the apophatic cataphatic balance
3: oh, yes as, you
1: got it yeah uh, there's so many things that I, i'd love to ask you you know my my brain really picked up on something when you dropped the the possible new title of your book um uh, which was
0: another, everything, which yeah. is a, would you say a word for everything another name for everything
1: another name for everything because um after i read falling upward the next book that i read by you everything belongs the gift of contemplative prayer really opened up new worlds for me. And I hear this conversation that we're having right now about the cosmic Christ and how it can bring together all of these diversities into a great unity. You know, in, in other parts of your work, you call about, you, you talk about like the deepness of time. You talk about the perennial tradition. You talk about a lot of these things. I wonder if um, the contemplative mode of prayer and this idea of the cosmic Christ, you know, it's, they're, they're almost, they're one and the same thing. Am, am I, am I right in saying they're
0: that? No, you're brilliant because uh, without non-dual thinking, which is contemplative thinking, you always divide into East and West, as we just talked about, liberal and conservative. And the big one here is human and divine. That if Jesus is the amalgam, Mm. The perfect amalgam of humanity and divinity, which is declared by the councils of the church, you know, this is our faith. Uh, Most Christians, and I said that in The Naked Now, I think, most Christians were intellectually, spiritually unprepared to believe that. Mm. Even though they might intellectually, yes, Jesus, totally human and totally divine. Uh, very human and very divine, as some said. Mm. Uh, they really couldn't, on any practical level, process that. It, it, they didn't have the brain cells for it, because <laughs> they hadn't learned the contemplative mind. The contemplative mind gives you the 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 if I can call it you know the software by which you can process paradox and mystery and dualisms and not maintain them as dualisms. Who was it that said the sign of a great mind is when you can hold together two conflicting ideas and not let them conflict? That was someone in the last century.
1: I can't remember.
0: they They said it better than that. But I believe Christianity once taught that mind how to live with paradox. But certainly after the Reformation, when we just got fighting with one another, there was no room for the contemplative mind. Basically, for the last 500 years, all we did was fight. Once you're fighting, you're not contemplative, period. You have no need to fight anything once you're inside the contemplative mind. And and almost all the fights of the Reformation, and I'm not blaming Protestants, we pushed you there. Because uh, we had lost it too by the 15th century, mm. which is why we needed reform. But an argumentative reform was not the answer. You understand? Yeah. Mm. It, it didn't help, it dug the pit even deeper.
1: So, how does the contemplative mind? The idea that everything belongs, as your book title uh, so aptly and succinctly puts it. How does the the contemplative mind um, take us further than the dualistic mind? And and if you could, how does that relate to the cosmic Christ? I'd be so curious to hear your thoughts on
0: that. Well, okay, let me jump to the conclusion of the second part. Uh, See, we were able to believe in Jesus, but not Christ. Jesus is the particular Christ is the universal. Mm. The dualistic mind always chooses one side of the equation and pitches its tent there. (laughs) And then spends the rest of its life defending the whole thing. I mean, this is the reason why I know you don't want to get into it right now, but why we can't deal with issues of gender today. No, go ahead. Sure. Go for it. It's female. Don't you talk to me. That some human beings are a combination of both. I don't want to hear it. I don't agree with it. They're incapable of agreeing with it because they've got a dualistic mind, mm-hmm. you know. Whereas if they could learn more subtle perception, mm. uh, you're at least middle-aged men. Mm-hmm. If you're middle-aged. You're beginning to let go of some of your macho teenage masculinity. I, are you married too? Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay, well, good. Wonderful. <laughs> I, I hope you're letting some of your wife's femininity. Are you daddies too? Have you got yes, children? Yes, yep, Of,
1: of daughters, I, no less.
0: Yeah. That's the pot even more. <laughs> so, so by the time you get my age, you know, you read the great mythologies and fairy tales of the world. And you can check me out on this. Uh, they're they're invari- invariably about sweet old men. Kind old men, all right, still in a masculine body, but they've been feminized by their wife and their children and the suffering of life. Hmm. And Hmm. you read the fairy tales of history, strong old women, all right, still in a feminine body. Maybe you're already seeing this in your wives. They take on a kind of fortitude and clarity and solidity that historically we identified with men. Mm. I don't mean to say that's men, but it's clear that uh, the genders overlap. And that's not something to be ashamed of or afraid of. It takes place in every human journey. Now, the non-dual mind, again, can see that. Can yeah. see that. Yeah, Just, And you don't have to fight it. I'm not trying to make some big case for homosexuality or transgender. I'm just saying open your eyes, that's all, and God will take it from there. I don't need to prove anything. Just open your eyes and open your heart, and God will take it from there and teach you all truth. Uh, But we don't know how to open our eyes or our mind when we've got a dualistic mind. We don't. We think our job is to have opinions. (laughs) (laughs) God, I'm just so tired of opinion. The whole world (laughs) Is sick of opinionated Christians. It's just, they're, they're not conversational, they're not dialogical, they're not compassionate, they're not going to save anybody's world because all they can do is circle the wagons around their own little camp and keep professing how right they are. Uh, love isn't possible in that schema. Well. So, to try to get back to your <laughs> initial question, the dualistic mind uh, divides the field of every moment. Uh, it, it it calls this thinking, mm. and it divides it into two opposing camps, and chooses one to be true, and then it over identifies with that side. <sighs> mm. It's just—it's pretty much the death of everything. <laughs> I mean, it's the death of everything. These people cannot form community. And you know, that was my first years of life trying to form community. Mm. Trying to form community with rigid people, intellectually, morally rigid people, you're wasting your time. The only way you can hold it together is by shaming people, by a lot of guilt, by a lot of coercion. And uh, then it works. I guess, but you know what? No one's very happy inside of such communities, but that's the final effect of dualistic thinking. So let me shut up. I'm preaching again. Go ahead. No, you're fine. You are, you are more than welcome. <laughs> ask me something else. Yeah.
2: I, I think you, you, you set us up perfectly for our next question. Adam and I both okay. had a similar one. Um, and our I, favorite roarism. I'm going to, so I'm going to do something we've never done before. I'm going to set Adam up to ask the question, <laughs> but, um, so one of the things that I think that we have we have attempted to do, I think that we have, have done a, a decent job at, which is I, I think we've tried to create a safe space on our podcast for people who have found that they have entered into uh, a journey of sorts, a spiritual journey. And yes. and to use your terminology um, from the book that, that I think kicked this whole thing off for us, um, people transitioning from that first half of life to the second half of life. Yes. Um, and but in the process, you know, it, inevitably we encounter uh, backlash if, uh, or uh, pushback. Is probably a better mm-hmm. better way to put it. And and there's there's a um, a phrase that you use commonly that we have adopted on our podcast. And I, I will let Adam our our favorite.
0: I can't wait to hear
1: what is our favorite roarism. Our favorite roarism, the phrase we come back to over and over and over again, and we think it is so important that we would have named our podcast this, I'm not even just saying that. What is transcend and include. We, We find it so powerful for those who find themselves moving along in their journey, yet the including part for them is so difficult. Could you talk about, like there are other podcasts out there that you can tell that they're celebrating how they've transcended. Just celebrating all the time, how transcended they are. But, but the it's never
0: in, inclusive,
3: but
1: the inclusive, yes. you can tell they're not able to love their previous yeah. self. The, so you yeah. talk, you talk about it.
0: Well, first of all, thank you for attributing it to me, but it—that's from Ken Wilber. Now I do use it a lot in our living school. Not to us, it's not. <laughs> but the, okay, well, thank you. And you've heard me add on to that—that that it is not transcendence if you cannot include. Mm. See, God is the one who can include everything. That's what the word forgiveness means. In fact, I believe the final resurrection is when God will forgive every sin. Mm. That's the final inclusivity. Now, I know the dualistic mind is upset at talking that way, but I don't know what else would be the victory of God. God is the great includer who can forgive everything.
3: Mm.
0: Now, our theology demands that we agree with that, that God can, can forgive everything. Maybe you don't want to say he He is going to forgive everything, but some saints did say that. Uh, and I don't need to prove that. That's, that's God's business. But the divine forgiveness is the ability to forgive everything. The freedom the divine freedom to forgive everything mm. that's total inclusivity where you can even use sin darkness mistake for the divine purpose mm. that's what i like to call the divine economy and you know why i have the courage to talk that way and i you know i as i guess i've earned it i'm 75 now that's right i've just seen how god has worked in my life in the life of people I work with. He, in fact, just keeps using their past mistakes, uh, not to exclude them, not to punish them, but to make them more compassionate, more wise, more forgiving. God doesn't get rid of your sin. He uses your sin in your favor mm. to bring you to God. Now, I, I, where did I learn that from? Well, Jesus, first of all, But I think Jesus learned that from the prophets. Uh, Take Jeremiah says the new covenant is going to be not based on the external law, but the law written in your heart where God will forgive and show mercy uh, even to Israel, which has been totally unfaithful. The old covenant was a bilateral agreement between Israel and Yahweh. The new covenant is God saying, well, I learned that you guys are never going to live up to your side. (laughs) So you know what? I'm going to keep my side anyway. If I ever do write one more book, I would like to go to every single one of the Jewish prophets and show that although they spend chapters railing against the phoniness, prostitution, hypocrisy of Israel, the final message is always, you know what, Israel? I'm going to love you anyway. Amazing. Uh, Ezekiel 16, mm-hmm. the dry bones. I'm going to make these bones live. So what we did, we got so blown away by the many chapters of, that were based on retributive justice mm-hmm. that we didn't notice that the final message of the prophets and of Jesus the last and greatest of the prophets, was to speak not retributive justice, but restorative justice. That God loves things into their wholeness even when they fail Him. You see, that's the divine love. Mm. That's a different message, and I think it is the biblical message. It's where the trajectory leads, but Consciousness simply wasn't there yet. Mm. It's not the Catholic Church's fault. It's not the Protestant Reformation's fault. I mean, the very word restorative justice, although it's used in the prophets, I will restore, I will restore, I will restore, Ezekiel says, uh, we just couldn't understand it. It's like the concept of nonviolence the Word didn't exist till the middle of the last century. Uh, I, I do think there's an evolution of consciousness.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: We can see things in the Bible that our ancestors couldn't see. So there's no point in thinking we're better, we're smarter, but that we're building on them and transcending and including. Yes. Uh, it's the very including that gives me the freedom to transcend and take it a step further and to know that I'm not a heretic. If I hadn't known the tradition, I wouldn't have the courage to talk the way I talk. Mm. I've I've always told people I'm a radical traditionalist. (laughs) And it's my knowledge of the tradition, Jewish, intertestamental, New Testament, Catholic Orthodox and Protestant and collecting and connecting all of those dots that ends up making you look like a deconstructionist when really you're a reconstructionist. That's, uh? that's, our, that's our dilemma all the time. <laughs> oh, it was the dilemma of the prophets. It was the dilemma of Jesus himself. And it always will be. You look like you're coloring outside the lines in fact, that's where the lines have led you. So, but it's a surprise to almost everybody.
1: Just you know? to anchor this, just practically as we close, because we want to be respectful of your time, and you've just you've done just such a wonderful job taking all of our planned oh, out I, questions here.
0: I Love to talk to people like you. Uh, you
1: get, for yeah. people, for people that have come to this space and they are having trouble. It, it, the way that I experience this, I'm having trouble loving my 22 year old self or I'm having trouble loving the the symbol of the church that I, that I left and the kinds of people that my imagination says are there or, you know, the political side that I vehemently disagree with when I'm having trouble including what I feel like I've transcended past and I'm starting to feel superior. What, what, what kind of words of uh, wisdom do you have for somebody like me that struggles with that?
0: Well, see that need to shame yourself or to feel shamed comes from that same dualistic mind, that mind that says there's there was a right way and there was a wrong way. But once you recognize God uses your wrong way, which you consistently offer Him, that's hmm. true. Hmm. I'm not denying sin. I'm just saying God uses sin. Hmm. That's very different. And once you know that that the two steps backward will be used by God to soften your heart, to open your mind, to teach you compassion and mercy. Then you stop living with such shame. Mm. And clergy and rigid parents uh, lose their ability to shame people.
3: Mm.
0: And that's the way we've up to now. I mean, that's the way parenting was done. And it's the way clergy thought they could control the congregation just a fire and brimstone sermon, threatening them with shaming, Mm. it worked. It did work. It it doesn't work anymore, by and large, Mm. except people who are still in the first box. Now, the trouble with staying in the second box, you don't think I'm being unfair. They throw out any notion of shame. (laughs) <laughs> and sometimes get trapped there. Do you understand? Mm. They pitch their tent in permanent disorder, delighting in disobedience and rebellion, and putting other people down who are in the first box. Mm. That's neither transcending nor including. Right, you know? right. They think they've transcended, but in fact it's just a new kind of arrogance. Mm. So I'm glad I could tack that on at the end of our talk. Because I'm not a classic liberal by any means. I will criticize the liberals just as much because they make the same mistake just in the second box instead of the first. You, you follow me? Yeah, Yeah. It's good. Well, the goal for both of us is the risen life of Christ, where I don't need to think I'm better than anybody. Jesus condemns nobody for crucifying him. Uh, there's no call for retribution in the New Testament, of the killing of Jesus. This is the home run, where you're finally, where grace has triumphed, where you don't need to blame, you don't need to accuse, you don't need to think you're better. I just am uh, somehow the triumph of God's incarnation in me. Mm. God gets all the credit, not me. But you you can't really understand that well, if you read Falling Upward, you know what I'm talking about
3: yeah, uh, yep.
0: in the last third of the book. But I think the last third of the book is the weakest part of the book because I'm still learning it myself. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's unsayable. It's, it's too big for any human being. It's mystical. You know, <laughs> the second half, the, the real or the third box, however you want to put it. So good.
2: I would I would just love for you to end on this note because I've I've heard you comment on this before and it was such a beautiful response that I think it would be a great way to end to kind of tack onto what we were just talking about and that is if uh, especially for our audience who are predominantly probably Protestant came coming out of uh, more fundamentalist type backgrounds where you know we're almost born into that shame and we're told from yes. from birth essentially that the whole reason that Jesus incarnated. Is to save us from our sin. You know, we're almost born into the negative, as it were.
0: So, yes, you start with the problem. Yes, and then you never, you never get beyond it. Go ahead, though.
2: Yeah. Oh no. So, so I, I've heard. I heard someone else ask you once in an interview. Well, if if, if Christ didn't uh, incarnate to save us from sin, uh, and and it's not about Adam, you know, his his initial sinning, then would Christ have incarnated? Like, what was the what was the whole point? You know what. Why would he come down in in human flesh? Yeah, that's the problem, right?
0: You know, just because I know we won't be able to talk about it enough. Mm -hmm. In my book, Things Hidden, this is chapters 8 and 9. But I've learned how to say it much better, I hope, in uh, the new book on the Christ. So you know some of the history I gave there. that We Franciscans disagreed with this already in the 13th century. We were never kicked out of the Catholic Church. It was simply called a minority position. <laughs> you could agree with the minority position, but when Protestantism came along, without realizing it, again and again, that while thinking they're rebelling against the Catholic Church, they accepted most of our mainline positions. Mm. It's like children who think they're rebelling against their parents, and then they end up just like them. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I often think that when I look at evangelicals, I said, oh, God, you're just like we were before Vatican II. Only only worse. (laughs) That's exactly how we were before 1960s. And so it makes it hard for me to be patient with evangelicals. (laughs) It's, it's like looking at your teenager when you're 60 years old. And say, oh my God, He's got to go through this. <laughs> now, I know that sounds terribly arrogant, but here was the minority position, which unfortunately you had never been taught, but in fact was acceptable inside of Orthodox Roman Catholicism was the Franciscan opinion. And you, you know, the two lines I'm going to say, perhaps Jesus did not come to change the mind of God about humanity. It didn't need changing, in parentheses. It didn't need changing. God loved. We were chosen in Christ before the world was made. All right? The problem was solved at the beginning. Ephesians one three and Ephesians 1, 9, too. Well, he says it about three times. Here's, here's our Franciscan opinion. Jesus came to change the mind of humanity about God. See, that's it. God, that's it in two sentences. That's it's, it. It's the whole, oh, well, yeah, and once someone hears it, it's very hard to unhear that. Yes, it is. And it's like, of course. And, of course, the downside of the the substitutionary penal atonement theory, even the word sounds terrible. Yes. And at least they have the honesty to call it a theory, because that's all it ever was, was a theory. Proposed by Anselm of Canterbury in the 11th century, uh, is that it ended up making the father an ogre, making the father very unfree in some people's thinking, especially if they had an abusive father or a cruel father, uh, or, uh, you know, a tyrant. That's why there's an underdeveloped mysticism because a lot of people if the truth be told did not like do not like god the father mm. if your father was an abuser and a lot of fathers were in human history there's just a huge blockage around this father language mm. and i'm sure you've encountered it already so that's the price we paid for this atonement theory it uh it has to go and uh Unfortunately, we were never saddled with it, so we we wonder why people resist it so much. But if you were given that as one of the four pillars of evangelical theology, I can understand why people think I'm a heretic. Sure, yeah. Uh, no. But I promise you, uh, the 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 true understanding of Jesus as the outflowing of divine love toward humanity and the blood symbolizing this, outpouring this kenosis Mm -hmm. or self-emptying of God, I'm not in any way downplaying Jesus. He will take on a much more exciting meaning. But uh, pray that this new chapter in the new book is better and it will make people know that this is good.
1: Well, we can't wait to read it. And we've used so much of your time. Thank you so much, Uh, sir.
0: An honor. You're welcome. You're a delight. Thank you. Oh, no. That's both. All right. thank yes, you very I much. You too. We'll be in okay. touch.
1: You're Adam and you're, what's your name?
0: John. Yes. John, John. Okay. Forgive me that I didn't know. Hopefully oh, we can
1: make it out to give you a hug in person someday soon.
0: Oh, love to have you. Where am I talking to? Where do you live? We're in Ohio. Ohio. Yeah. Oh, where I used to live.
1: Yes. I'm actually reading your uh, compatriots book. Uh, you are the beloved right now. And thinking, thinking about how you were friends with uh, old Henry.
0: Wow. But you live in what city in Ohio? Columbus. Yeah. Oh, see, I was in Cincinnati and Dayton. Yep.
2: Yeah. Adam originally is from uh, I'm
0: Cincinnati. I'm from Cincinnati. Mm-hmm.
1: What part? I was where... raised I was raised in the sort of northern, like, Mason
0: area. Oh, yeah. Like, hey, by, sure.
1: by Kings Island. and yeah. <laughs> Kings
0: Island. <laughs> well, I lived in Winton Place there. There you go. Uh, yeah, right close to St. Bernard. That's where the community was at. Oh, you know? uh, yeah. Okay, well, thank you both. Thank you. Thank you so much. God bless. You make my day. day. Can't
1: wait for the new book.
0: (laughs) You won't be out till Thanksgiving, I don't think.
1: That's all right. Okay. They'll be ready for it. They'll be
0: ready for it. (laughs) Thank you, brothers.
1: Thank Thank you you. so much, sir. Take care.
3: Bye-bye. Bye. (laughs)
1: <laughs> just ah it's that's all i got man
2: what a breath of fresh air
1: i mean of course i had about 20 more questions i wanted to ask him
2: <laughs> always
1: and climb through the screen because we actually did get to again sometimes we get the video yeah and and actually seeing his just he's so kind and yeah. wise and i wanted to hug him so
2: badly <laughs> yeah <laughs> It's like it's, there are certain people who are so kind, they exude kindness that you can you can visibly see it yes. emanating from them. Yeah, like synesthesia. Like You're, like
1: your, your computer screen was like emanating like orange. Yeah. <laughs> like, I was like, man, why is your screen glowing? Yeah. <laughs> what a huggable human being. Oh, my gosh. So much fun. Uh, I just hope that that was a gift that people will listen to over and over and over again. Uh, not for any kind of like listens or ratings or anything like that. Like, but I hope that in years to come, when people Google Richard Rohr, um, long after he passes, people are going to find the Deconstructionist Podcast, Richard Rohr One Hundred One, and just find like a great introduction to his heart and soul and what this guy's after. Because I think it's beautiful.
3: Yeah,
2: and and all I can say is, uh, if you like, you know what what you heard. Uh, on this podcast, go back, listen to our earlier one with him. Oh yeah. Go out and grab his books. His books are just, I mean, it just, it made me feel like this sense of comfort that i had never felt in the midst of going through like the scary part of deconstruction where mm, I was yeah. like, I don't know what I believe. I don't know where I stand. And there was this guy who reached out to me through this book without even knowing it, who just brought me comfort and mm. calm and a sense of, uh, it, it just, I don't know. It, it didn't, It encouraged my sense of curiosity, I think. Yeah. And it was like, yeah, yeah. It was kind of like somebody, like a father coming along to a child and and holding their hand and and just kind of leading them along the path and saying, it's okay.
3: Yeah,
1: man.
2: That's the way I felt.
1: Encouraging the wonder. Yep. Like not discouraging it. Or um, I think that what you see out there a lot are, and and I get it, man. Pastors are nervous because they, they... you know, a lot of them just don't feel like they're going to know how to lead people through this. And that's real. Like, yeah, that's a real fear and it's not easy. And it's, you know, I guess what I would say is that's where faith comes in. And like, Mm -hmm. you get to grow in faith in those situations when you don't know what to do. Like fear is when you feel fear, it's always an opportunity to like exercise some kind of like faith, whether it's like in the universe or like whatever. But like, I mean, if you think about it, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, for him, he just knows how to just be like, no, it's okay. Like, it's all right. this is part of the deal. Like yeah. actually look in scripture, look in church history, look in literature, look in poetry, look in, look in the science, look, in, look at, look, this is part of the deal. Yeah. You're vibing the right way. This is, it's okay. It's like uh, when we were talking to Ken Dobson mm-hmm. and he talked about getting with his spiritual advisor and he's got all these doubts and like questions and he was expecting like, someone to guide him away from that. And they were like, oh no, this is the good stuff. You got to lean into this. Yeah, Like there was permission there. And even uh, like in an excitement, you know, it's like when I see my son or my daughter, like getting into something and asking questions and like trying to work something out and they might be doing it like in the wrong way. But as a dad, I'm like, oh, you're doing it. Yeah. You're doing it. Like you're digging into something and you're getting excited about it. Like that's awesome. Um, I think the one thing I want to point out in this interview is just how awesome it was that we thought transcend and include was a Richard Rohr quote <laughs> yeah. because we're so not well read. And he called us out and he's like, no, nah, that's Ken Wilber. No. <laughs> we're like, no, no, it's not <laughs> credit where credit is due. No, it's yours now. It's yours now. It's yours now. <laughs> so that was so much fun. And, oh and for our Denver friends, Oh my gosh. Yeah everybody that came out to that show thank you so much i mean so so many people to thank um just incredible stories were shared uh, a safe space opened up and uh, you guys stole the show everybody that came you guys s- stole the show it was absolutely amazing um we made so many friends um if you guys haven't reached out to us a few of you've reached out to us just to like let us know what's going on and what you're planning on doing and Guys, reach out to us. We became friends in Denver. We are now yeah. friends. Yeah. So please, we want to hear from you. And um, it was so awesome. And wish all of you could have been there. And and it's amazing that I didn't bleed out on stage. So Yeah. That that's a story for the books right yep, there.
2: Yeah. Yep. John
1: John got a nosebleed mid-Joseph Campbell lecture. Yeah. And I thought the world was coming to an end, and I, he was being smited.
2: I also thought. <laughs> I was like. Oh no, I have a few more things yet to talk about and I don't know how bad this is. <laughs> oh my gosh, but it was such a blast. We we feel so loved
1: that we I, I don't think my words could even express.
2: Oh, it was it was absolutely amazing. Um and I also want to send a, a huge thank you um to, to Katie and uh, the Savoy at Curtis Park, the venue. Um they were so incredibly helpful and kind and gracious and helping us with the setup, the teardown. Um, running the bar, all that good stuff, making sure that we had everything we needed. Um, so if you're from the Denver area, uh, support them. They're a really cool local venue. Uh, very, like, old, uh, classic building. It was um, awesome. Uh, unbelievable. So definitely uh, want to send out my uh, my thanks and appreciation to those, those folks at the Savoy. Yeah. So what a cool town, man.
1: Yeah, it was absolutely amazing. We love you guys so much. And, uh, yeah, we're going to be... Um, Kind of a little sporadic on episodes. We're going to have some breaks coming in. John and I have got some serious adulting that we're doing in our lives right now. Yeah. Um, lots and lots and lots and lots of extraneous stuff. John just moved. We have a new recording studio. So if we sound better, you can thank John for that. <laughs> he rigged us up something special. And uh, we just got a lot going on. But it's going to be a great summer. We've got lots more good juice for you coming up this year. Mm-hmm. And um, I hope you guys know this already. But we love you guys.
2: Yeah. Yep, and uh, so like Adam said, we have probably one more episode this month, and just so you guys know, uh, we're going to take a little break in the month of June. So we have some vacations and some rest. We're going to kick our feet up. We're going to contemplate. We're going to contemplate and probably have a couple drinks. Yeah, Yes. And some laughs. And then we'll be back in July with some good, good stuff.
1: We might do like a, like a library release or something. Ooh, yeah, 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 maybe. Yeah. If you, guys, if you guys can think of a, a good library release, like, man, we should re-release this again. You know, people that kind of just started listening would appreciate it or whatever. Yeah. Shoot us a tweet or something, but I think that's all we got.
2: Yeah. Join our, uh, our Patreon if you so desire. We have some cool packages on there. If you want to join the book club, uh, we send you a, a book per month uh, of our own choosing. Sometimes a guest that we've had on, sometimes not. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on those books, too. And yeah. don't forget uh, for, for those who signed up for the uh, the recording deal where we call you and Skype with you, we're still going to do that. Uh, we apologize; it's been a little delay. My house is literally for sale right now. Shit, just kind of hit the fan in both of our lives. <laughs> yes, so uh, I am unpacking. We are. We have a scheduler, online scheduler thing set up, and uh, as soon as we figure out the dates for those, uh, we will send some po- post something on the Patreon website. And, and you guys will be the first to know about it. So
1: I just realized that I spelled the word shit.
2: Yeah, you did. Because I
1: just feel like your daughter's around here or something.
2: <laughs> She's asleep.
1: I don't terrible. really have to do that. It's kind of PG-13 at this we're, point. We're adults. We're <laughs> adults. It's okay. You have, you have a beer on the table. It's true. I did. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> I needed one. Today oh, was that's rough. a good laugh. Okay. <laughs> all right. Love all you guys. right. Love you guys. <laughs> we'll see you later. <laughs> Bye-bye.
3: Bye-bye.